turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. We'll be looking specifically at verses 15 to 17, but if you can look at it in the context, verses 12 to 17, Paul writing to Timothy and giving him instructions as a young son in the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to go to video song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I invite you to stand as, and sing along with this sweet hymn. If you would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 to 17. I want to begin in a moment with a um, clip that takes place from um, Scotland. The world's perspective. What is the meaning of Christmas? What is the essence of Christmas? I want us to hear, well, this is what many in the world think and what they feel, and then we'll address throughout the message. What does the word of God say? And then we'll end with a clip. This is a Christian perspective, but let's hear what, they, what the world feels and thinks of the essence of Christmas. Christmas magic is in all the twinkly stars, a city transformed. I love the buzz and the excitement of seeing Jenner town, seeing Jenner's Christmas tree and all its lights. He's right, it's magical. Walking up Victoria Street from the grass market, the Christmas lights are so beautiful up there and all the displays in the shop windows, it just reminds me of a picture book from childhood. The Christmas tree on the mound, which I believe comes from the King of Norway. And well, in Edinburgh, a big part is the Christmas market and you have to understand it's about getting wrapped up and walking through winter wonderland. The carousel in the Christmas market, it's absolutely magical, I love it, it's my happy place. And well, you know, sometimes at Christmas people disagree. The German Christmas market, far too many people in the town for it. The rampant consumerism, that's not great. Um, obviously the planet needs a bit less of Christmas magic is about being able to eat and drink at any time, tip over the line, have copious amounts of festive. Mulled wine. Crap Christmas cracker toys and the smell of turkey. Getting the, the beige buffet out <laughs> from all good retailers. And a Prosecco. A moment's gratitude and pause. Oh, and for the stars, you light the way in the dark. You are the magic. And don't you forget it. Merry Christmas. I don't know why, but I think I watched that clip five, six times, maybe even seven. And just my heart aches when I see just the emptiness, a man-centered lack of mention of Christ. And but as purposely I wanted to watch it, I guess, just to burn in my heart. This is where the world is. And we need to be reminded of the essence of Christmas. What is Christmas? 
as we rub shoulders with people around us, be able to share the truth with them. Um, Sadly, our world doesn't understand it, and yet are we able to articulate it clearly? And we look in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul provides a clear statement as to what is the meaning of Christmas. Um, I turn here purposely because I really think that we're in danger of not only Christianity, but um, the world. We're in danger of missing what is the point of Christmas. We're in danger of being so familiar with so much, and yet we're missing the central issue. What is Christmas? And I find myself drawn into, you know, over the years we get together with family and all the gatherings. Um, But what really is Christmas? You know, there's so much confusion in the world um, as to who is Christ? Uh, What is Christmas? And what is the meaning of Christmas? What is Christianity? Um, Those who profess Christ, and I assume it's everyone in this room or most of us, those of us that profess Christ as our Savior, we should be able to articulate the message of Christmas, Christmas really in one sentence, making it clear to the world what is Christmas. And Paul does that exactly in this passage. Christmas, our, our missional God, um, revealing his plan to redeem all people, to redeem all nations. He's not going to be left in the heavens. He's going to be on mission. He's going to be the, the gospelizer, so to speak. He's going to share the gospel. And he's going to get involved in our lives. Because that's the way the heart of God goes. From the beginning, when man fell, he immediately gave this prophecy that one day one would come to solve man's sin problem. And Christmas is that time of the year for us just to reflect on this awesome truth of who Christ is and what he has done for us. Because Jesus Christ came, we're able to experience real joy, genuine joy, joy that's not empty and talk about some, something magical, but something that's inspirational, something that is dynamic of what Christ has done for us. And we're able to come to this time of the year that, and sing praises to God because we understand what Christmas truly is. So if I were giving a main point, what I'm really after is I want us to be able to look at our response of Christ's first coming to be something that's praise, to praise him, and to impact my life. I want to hear a testimony of one of our men and how he addresses this point. I realized that the very first persons to ever hear the gospel were shepherds. I, like the shepherds, needed to hear, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Because on the day the Spirit opened my heart and I understood what my sin meant to a holy God, I needed to hear immediately that I did not have to fear that there is a way to be saved from the punishment that was set aside for me. That same spirit convinced me that Jesus was the Son of God, that he stood in my place to take my punishment. This was no longer just a story to be told at Christmas. Jesus really lived. He died for every sin in my entire life. He really rose from death to live forever as proof. We're like the shepherds. The gospel, the good news, is proclaimed. What will our response be? Will we stay with all we have guarded, all that we gave our energy to obtain and keep? Or will we leave our sheep behind and believe the truth? Me? I will go and praise God and glorify the name of Jesus. That's really what we're after as we look at First Timothy chapter 1. What will our response be to this very 
basic truth, we're familiar with it. And in one sense, it's informational, but yeah, I want it to be inspirational as we reflect and be reminded of the simple gospel message. Who is Christ? Why did he come? And what should my response be to that? So Paul gets right into this, having given the background, verses 12 to 14, as we look at the reason for Christ's coming. We're going to focus first on the person. Paul says in verses 12 to 14, he gives his radical background, what, who he was as a persecutor, as a blasphemer, as an injurious individual. But he changes all of that. He's now able to give praise to God. How? How can he give praise to God? He is able to praise God, and we're the same way. We're able to praise God because of the agent. Who's the agent? Jesus Christ. And Paul says immediately in verse 15 that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I'm going to break it down, just basically looking at verse 15 with application in 16 and 17. But look at the person, first of all. You're familiar with it, but we need to be able to refresh it and share it with people. Who is Christ? And for us to be reminded, this Christmas season, it's not lights, it's not something magical, it's not restaurants, it's not getting together, to be reminded. And those of us that went to Israel, as we're reminded behind me, the hills of Bethlehem, Christ came. So here, Christ Jesus. Um, who is Christ Jesus? Um, in Jesus' time, he was relatively unknown. Um, as we look at Christ yet today, um, He's not unknown. About 30% of the world professes some kind of allegiance to Christianity. This person, Jesus, who is Jesus? He had no formal education, um, yet tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of educational institutions, and ours being one of them, faith, Christian, so to speak, are named after Christ. He never wrote a book or saw a library, but he caused more books to be written about him than any other person that has ever lived. Um, he never heard an oratorio, he never went to some grand opera, and yet he has prompted the writing of the greatest hymns, oratorio, and mus musical performances in the world ever. Um, he never, um, he wasn't involved in art, yet he's awakened the genius of artists worldwide that have inspired more works, and their works are in great galleries of the world because it's about Jesus Christ. He was never more than 100 miles from his infancy, from his hometown, and yet the message of Jesus Christ has gone into every corner of the world. Jesus Christ. We know that he's born of a virgin. We sing that truth, and we claim that, and we, we, we proclaim that. But everything else about his life was normal, so to speak. He grew up in a family, grew in understanding as he prompted the Spirit of God um, follow the prompting of the Spirit of God in his, in his life. Um, Christ grew um, in, his God, in his humanness, but yet may we not get confused and forget that he was absolutely 100% divine. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, that one day that he would come, this Messiah, and he says in Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So speaking one day, 700 years ago, away, that one day this individual would come. He would be Emmanuel. Who would he be? He would be God with us. Specifically, something special about a virgin giving birth to God. And yet he foretold that. You know, you could take away Buddha and still have Buddhism. You could take away Allah and still have Islam. 
You could take away Krishna and still have Hinduism, but you can't take away Christ and still have Christianity because the messenger is the message. Um, the two are intimately connected. And so when the gospel writers start to unpack this incredible truth is who is Jesus? They trumpet on such amazing truth like John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That this word that came was God. Then it would say around verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. And then it would talk about Jesus Christ being that individual. So John declared, Jesus Christ is the word. He's God. Thomas would say later, my Lord and my God. Paul would say in Romans chapter 9, according to the flesh is, is the Christ who is God over all. Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's not anyone inferior. So when we talk about the message of Christmas and we get this idea of Christ, remember who he is. He's not some chump individual coming just happened to show up he is God incarnate the almighty the everlasting one the prophet spoke that one day he would come that this the Christ the anointed one would come that's why when we look this morning in the passage in Luke chapter 1 that's how Mary was able to accept it it wasn't a new truth to her she was familiar with the prophecies that the prophets had given that one day he would come in fact, when it's announced in Luke 1, 32 and 33, and he would be the son of the highest, son of God, the, the highest, she's basically told, hey, you know, you're going to have a baby. And by the way, this baby, as you're a virgin, he's going to be God Almighty. She wasn't shocked by that because she was prepared by the, by the teaching of it. And she had this faith, and we, we looked at it in our small groups, you know, doubting, but but having faith and obedience that she trusted the Lord and she followed accepting his master plan because the prophets had talked about this person that would come. The wonder of this all is really throughout the Gospels. Matthew chapter 16, when Christ is in Caesarea Philippi in the northern part of Israel, and we were there, a bunch of us, and as he's standing here, he asked the question, who do people say that I am? They gave their answer. Then Peter nails it and said, when Christ asked him specifically, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The demons even gave that message when they came out of him and they shouted, you are the son of God. Thomas said that, my Lord and my God. So the scriptures are packed full with who is Christ? Christ is God Almighty. So what, what is Christmas? Before we can talk about why he came, understand who the he is. Who is Christ? Bathe our minds in that truth. May we never get over the wonder of it all that, that God Almighty put on flesh to rescue me. The town is Dublin, Ireland. The date is April 13, 1742. The place is Neil's Music Hall. And as the choir stands up and they sing the Hallelujah Chorus, it would become a chorus that would be quite well known throughout the world. In fact, this was the musical beginning of the Messiah that Handel had written, and it, would become the, it was destined to become the most well-known musical in all of the world. In the audience that day, one incredible guest was King George II. And when he heard this 
this hallelujah chorus. He couldn't stay seated. He popped up to his feet and stood. And with him, everyone else stood. And that has become the character of the Messiah. When people hear it, they immediately stand. George Frederick Honda was born in Germany in February 23rd, 1685. He was just incredibly gifted as a musician, just about on the other end from where I am. Um, but he was able at the age of seven play a string instrument. By the age of 19, he had mastered every orchestra instrument and was brilliant. Um, in Italy, he is performing his oratorios. But when he went to England is when he hit, so to speak, pay dirt. He became famous, um, would play for the nobility and royalty and performing, and he was well-known in England. But at the age of 56, at 1741, he wanted more. He wanted more than just what he had at that point. And so he prayerfully considered, how can I write something that would be longer-lasting and would just make people better? And so he spent 23 days nonstop, sleeping a little bit, eating, but just pouring out um, on, on paper, his pen, and writing what would become the masterpiece, paste, the Messiah. Um, and this has three parts, this masterpiece. The one, the, it's all focuses on Jesus. The first part is prophesying the birth of Jesus and one that's coming. And then the second part, he's focusing on the death of Jesus, his, his um, sacrifice for mankind. And when he sings that, has the hallelujah chorus, understand God omnipotent, he's talking about Jesus. The focus is on, is on Christ. Then the third part of his great um, oratorio, he's hurling the resurrection of Christ. I want us to pause for a moment and listen to the Sydney Opera sing the Hallelujah Chorus. And as they're singing it, just be reminded of who Jesus Christ is. This person that they're singing about came to this earth to rescue us. I feel like clapping. Just an awesome truth and reminder of who Christ is and his person. The Lord omnipotent reigneth forever. It is this Christ, is this person. He came for a reason that only he could accomplish. So we look at it in verse 15 that Jesus Christ came into the world. Let's talk about the process of Jesus Christ coming into the world. What's involved in that? The word came. You know, it's just not speaking of a change of location like, hey, uh, he was hanging out in heaven, now he's hanging out on earth. It's, it's speaking of so much more, his incarnation, that Christ came, but how he came, he put on human flesh. Christ did not set aside one attribute. He was still 100% God and 100% man. It's that com combining what some call the theanthropic, the, the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. 
Christ Jesus came from eternity past, from the presence of God to earth, to the presence of sinful man into temporal time. Christ, the infinite God, took on the substance of mankind. Christ, the eternal one, in his condescending grace, was, was allowed to be put into a, a manger that we have a, a little representation of that. Imagine the infinite one in a little manger like that, restricted, attended by animals, and probably in a cave like we saw the, this summer. God, the eternal one? God, how is that? And yet we're looking at this, this incredible process, which, by the way, is not only speaking of his incarnation taking on humanity, but still God, but his preexistence. Jesus, it doesn't say he was born or he began. It's speaking of his eternality. He had no beginning. He's the eternal one. So this phrase came is just chock full of so much. John eight fifty eight. John writes before Abraham, or Christ says, before Abraham was I am. Paul writes, for by him were all things created. Hebrews 13 says, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, forever. John writing in the book of Revelation, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come. So here is the eternal one coming from eternity past into a specific time period. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 6 and, 6 and 7 writes this, if we could put that on the board. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God or something to be held on to at any cost. Um, he was in the form, his very essence of God. His very person was God. Um, Christ in his absoluteness, that word form, isn't referring to something external, but it's referring to his inner essence. But he didn't hold on to that external expression in heaven he was willing to set aside his external glory and he came down to this earth and emptied himself well not of his attributes not at all but emptied himself of that external visible glory shielded it by how by putting on the form of man this this is christmas this is the eternal one coming Jesus Christ, yes, he was born supernaturally, but may we never forget that he also came historically. He is a historical person. He's a person that existed. The birth of Jesus, this child in a remote Judean wilderness, has transformed history. Why? How? Because the child who came was none other than Yahshua, the Messiah the anointed one, the one that was foretold. It was a historical event. It was a prophesied event. You know, when you look at the Christmas account, and maybe you'll do that with your family, but here in Matthew chapter 2, the Persians come strolling into town, right? And they're, in, they're strolling into town, and they're asking the question, where is the, where is the king? Where is the king of the Jews? Because they followed some star, and they're there in all of their royalty and pomp and their external extravagance. And there's one man that comes completely unglued because he hears of a king. So Herod is real panic. He gets together the religious leaders. What does he ask them? Where is he to be born? And they refer to Micah chapter 5. It says in the prophet that one would be born. It would be Bethlehem in the land of Judea. So they refer to, so it was a prophesied event. 
they knew that he would come in this coming. It wasn't something that surprised them. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Christ standing in the synagogue in, in um, Nazareth, and he reads from the, from the scroll of Isaiah, and it's handed to him, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's an incredible statement that the prophet is speaking one day that the Messiah will, will do, will accomplish. Christ sits down. Everyone is staring at him. And he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You see, it was a prophesied event that Christ would come. So the process, putting on humanity, fulfilling, this, fulfilling scripture, coming for a purpose. You probably have heard it said, but a mathematician figured out what are the chances of these prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus? And let's, let's just take eight of them. If you were to take eight prophecies, now how many were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus? 100? How about 200? 300? I think between 333 and 380. I mean, so, but let's just take eight of them. What are the chances of the prophets writing eight prophecies and them coming true in one person? And this mathematician, I forget his name. I should have looked it up. Um, but he came up and he said, one to the 10th power with 17 zeros follow. That's the chances of eight prophecies being true in one person. Now, let's put it a little bit more specifically. Let's take the state of my, where my dear friend, our dear friend, Fred Thompson is living in Texas. Fred, why did you leave? But anyway, um, so Texas is a massive state. If you were to take silver dollars and fill the whole state of Texas, 10 to 17 zeros, it would be silver dollars that it would be equal to the amount of two feet deep. Now, two feet deep throughout the whole state of Texas and take a man, mark one coin, mark it with a red pen, and blindfold him and tell him that he has to, drop him off, let's drop him off in Denton, Texas. And he has to travel, maybe we put it over in, um, down in, in, in Austin. So, but he doesn't know that. But he's going to walk throughout the whole state of Texas blindfold, and when he bends down and picks up that coin, that's the chances of 110 17th power of eight prophecies being fulfilled. That's just eight. In other words, it's scientifically impossible but the word of God is so exact in hundreds of prophecies foretelling what would happen. God omnipotent who reigns, he was coming, our missional God, because he was coming with a purpose. That's Christmas. He was coming with an agenda. And that agenda was to rescue us. So as we look at the purpose, it says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Why did he leave his heavenly palace? God, help me to be reminded of this at this sweet time of the year. I know who you are, and I know that you're eternal one. I know the incredibleness of the whole process. But why did he come? Came into the world to save sinners. Who's the world? What is the world? There are a bunch of good people that are righteous, awesome, God-pleasers, never sin, incredible people. Is that who they are? Not quite, right? 
The world is quite the exact opposite. The world is mankind that's alienated from the life of God. Mankind that is dead spiritually. Mankind that is exposed to the judgment of God. Mankind that's in desperate need of salvation. Christ came into the world and we were the world at one time. We were part of the world. We needed to be rescued. Christ came to rescue us. Christ came to impact us. And Paul uses a word sinner, which is a pretty fascinating word for him to use because he's a Pharisee, or a former Pharisee. And we follow the interaction of Christ and the Pharisees through the Gospels, and we see that Pharisees despise sinners. Pharisees had two groups of people. Um, they were the righteous. Can you guess who the righteous were? <laughs> the Pharisees, of course. And who the sinners were? Everybody that wasn't a Pharisee. So they had the righteous and the sinners, but they hated Christ because he associated with sinners. He associated with the scandalous people. He associated with people that, that weren't righteous, people that were outside of God's good purposes. But Paul uses that word and identifies himself in all of us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What's the specialness of Christmas? And, and we've got to put the brakes on all of the presents and festivities and just to remind our children, and not just a quick reading of the gospel account and feel good about that, but just to be, do we know who we, we're reminded of who we were, that we were dead in our sin. We were separate from God. We were like a spider dangling, as Jonathan Edwards' message is, dangling over a fire in the face of a God that was angry with our sin. That's who we were. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to save sinners. And that's why it hurts to look at the, the glib of the... The BBC, the social, magical in Edinburgh, it's so much more than that. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save. You know, save is... It's an awesome word that perhaps we throw around so quickly and, and loosely. It's to be kept from harm, to preserve us, to help us. From what harm did Christ come to save us? Hell. Eternal separation. You know, it hurts when, when I hear and when we hear people that have passed away and will often ask, did they know Jesus as their Savior? And if they didn't, the first couple minutes in eternal fire, the first couple minutes of, of eternity. But anyway, we're, we're the children of, of wrath, the children of the devil. We were enemies of God, but, but he came. He came to save us. The natural outcome of our position would have been judgment and separation from God. And it would have been forever. Um, but Christ's Christmas is, is our missional God coming. Uh, Christmas is our missional God impacting people that maybe we thought we had accepted Christ years ago. And yet, that all changed on Mark. Um, Christmas is Christ having patience with us, coming into our fallen world, our world to change everything. This, this picture 
um, behind me is, um, many of us are familiar with it in, in Bethlehem. And when we were there um, this summer, we went actually to the shepherd's cave. And um, after seeing the shepherd's cave, I was able to get alone. I had always wanted to do this before. Why, when Lynn and I were there, we didn't travel the hillside of Bethlehem. Maybe we were so rattled by that guy that took us there. We just wanted to get out, I guess. But I just wanted to stare and take a few moments and just process it all. And so while people were doing their thing and I had five minutes, ten minutes, whatever, I went behind this building and just stared at the hill. Now, whether that was the hill in which the angels announced, but it's Bethlehem, the hills of Bethlehem. And just thinking of the drama of that night, shepherds that are righteous men, they yearn for the Messiah. We know because the angels would not have given them such an important proclamation. And all of a sudden, one angel appears to them and gives this life-changing truth. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He's come. He has come. You have heard the stories, even though you're despised shepherds of the Messiah. He has come. And he's right down there in your town. And then just imagining the sky lit up and the angels coming and giving glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill to men, and the men running down into But just was a sweet time to thank the Lord that he came, came to rescue us. And it all happened right here in, in Bethlehem in our, in our earth. Let's go to the results of Christ's coming. I want to pause for a moment and have one more testimony. What is the, the purpose of Christ's coming? What, what should be the result of Christ's coming? In light of what he's done for us, what should be our response? Let's listen to another friend. What does Christ's coming the first time for me represent? Um, it's not just what it represents. It's God really did come to save. He came down out of heaven uh, to be born as a child, live an entire perfect life that I have not lived and cannot live, um, and then to die in my place. That kind of love uh, and that kind of forgiveness, it's really directed the course of the entirety of my life ever since I got saved. Um, my life as a husband, as a father, as a son, a friend, um, just as a person passing on the street, the focus of my life has now become to try to share that same love and forgiveness that I've experienced with others. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful to be a part of God's ministry to a broken and lost world because I remember living that every day. So the uh, first coming of Christ makes me not be able to wait for the second one. He was in his backyard there taping that. <laughs> we look in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason that is in me as a foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. We're the recipients of God's mercy. We're the recipients of God's patience and mercy expressing just, just God's goodness God's compassion, God's pity that he had on us. 
that, that if we could just see the world with just a fraction of, of the pity that, that God had towards us. And Paul's writing of that, that pity, that mercy. And he's now leaping forward. And he's, if, you, if you follow, understanding the, the truth of why, who Christ is and why he came, he's just bursting forth of praise to God. And he's just giving God glory. That's his result of understanding what Christ has done. So when Paul says that he received mercy, we should ask the question, why did Paul receive mercy? Did he receive mercy so that he could get out of hell and get to heaven? That's not the main reason. Did he receive mercy that he could write all the epistles and be the messenger and the great preacher of the gospel? That's not the primary purpose or reason. Look what it says here in verse 16. For this reason, receiving mercy, that in me, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. He saved me so that he would hold me up so that he could be glorified, so that he could be exalted, so that people would understand his patience. They would understand his endurance, his steadfastness. Because you need to re- we need to be reminded, right? Who is, who is Paul? What did he do? He gave that in verses 12 to 14. He was a murderer. I mean, he was back pocket on the road to Damascus the names of people that he was going to haul off to put them into prison and some of them be executed. Paul received God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And he said that God now was going to take the worst offender that was living on earth, save him, and hold him as a trophy of his patience, of his mercy to me, of his steadfastness of holding on. Paul took the per- God took the person that annoyed him the most, that opposed him the most, that was most uh, greatest, his greatest opponent, and changed his life. And now he's holding up God's patience, and it becomes a model. The word example is used there as an example to those who would believe. So he's holding up this example, and he says, now, this is what I'm going to do in life of other people. And there's, there is a host of people here tonight that God has had that same patience and that same um, resilience and grace in our lives and mercy because we've come to know Christ as our Savior. Um, rejoice this morning, the deacons few of them were here the testimonies of another couple that's joining and just hear God's grace of to reaching this couple in in Haiti um, that just trusted in Christ as their savior but God's patience to Paul was an example of what he would do throughout the church age throughout history and Paul just can't help but to praise and thank God and give him glory what happened to Paul namely God's patience and love was going to happen to untold and numerous people. In fact, I think it's Revelation 5 where it talks about the multitude in the heavens that's going to give God praise. So what's the application in our lives to all of this informational truth? We, we know this, but may my heart, may your heart be stirred at this Christmas season. Um, so what's our application? You know, we have received eternal life. We have been granted God's mercy, um, God's long-suffering, God's Sweetness has shined upon, shone upon us. Christmas time is, is the coming of the God-man, God incarnate into my world, dwelling around all of this garbage, being that consistent radiant light, mentoring a host of people that would go out into the world and change the world for eternity. 
So what should be my response as I'm a recipient of that prayer when Christ prayed in John 17, Lord, I pray for those that you've given to me and those that would hear from the word that you've given to me. And we are the recipients of that prayer that Christ prayed for us to save us. So what should should my application be or my heart be? And I'm reminded that Christ rescued me. There are so many categories, but I think of as parents. Now, what do we yearn for as our kids, as parents? When I am reminded of what Christ has done in my life, or maybe we can include as grandparents. You know, we want to be included in that category. Um, But what should we yearn for our children or our grandchildren in light of what Christ has done? Isn't there more than, man, I really hope that they become a great soccer player or basketball player or they get these high SAT tests or they could go to this school or they could get whatever accolades life offers? May we yearn, God, God, I want them to know you. I want them to be reminded of who you are and what you've done. I want them never to lose that sweet step in their lives that everything's shaped. We talked about this morning in our small group, holistic surrender to God because they're moved with gratitude over who you are and what you've done. Secondly, when we think of all of our relationships that we have, It ought to shape every relationship that we have with our spouses, with our children, with our colleagues at work, with our our unsaved, that I I look at what Christ has done, and I'm not going to be somebody arrogant. I'm not going to be somebody uh, uh, that's contentious. God, keep me humble. Keep me having victory over the sins of the flesh. Help me to keep being a servant for you or to become a servant for you. It ought to change everything because... The high one was made low so the low ones could be made high. I ought to be filled with gratitude in my heart. It ought to shape how we use our time, shouldn't it? You know, when we're, we're, we're hanging out and just relaxing, we're tired. What do we do with that time? How are we going to be on mission for God? When we come to the end of our work journey and you think of, what life is like in retirement. What's the dreams that we have? Is it just to sit home and, as I talked to one person Thursday after the program, and um, an unsaved family that I've been, we've been building rapport with, um, but I said to this person, you know, how's it going with your husband having retired? And she says, I have to get him to stop watching TV. I mean, is that, is that the definition of our, of our dream life? See, it, This truth ought to change everything. It should change every aspect of our lives holistically. It's true that Christ, that Christmas is about Christ coming into the world, right? Is that true? True or false? You still with me? It's true that Christmas is about Christ coming into the world. But remember that we have come into the world for Christ. You know, not only is is Christ coming into this world for us, God has saved us and brought us into the world. We're not to live for ourselves. We're to live for him, and that's the purpose of of our whole lives. We're not going to get to verse 17 much, but let me just hit it in in passing. Paul gives this incredible doxology, and he just is full of praise to God. By the way, verse 16, the word eternal life, it's the same Greek root for ages. So he's focusing on king of the ages, 
In verse 16, he says, we that have believed, we have eternal life. And then he slips right into king of the ages. I think what he's really thinking of there is, I'm given eternal life, and I'm going to get to be with the eternal one forever. So he's just praising God. He's looking at the immortal one, this one that's always there for me. He's going to defend. He's always there to help me in every aspect, the invisible one, the only true God. He is just filled, giving praise to God for all that he's done. But it all comes to what the essence of Christmas is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have one last skit. Christmas. Magical time of the year. Spiritually magical. What God has done for us. May we remember the true meaning of Christmas. Yes, Christ came into this world for us. But by God's grace and mercy, we have come into the world for such a time as this. For his glory to live out our, our mission, purpose to his honor and glory, as Paul writes in verse 17. God, we love you. We thank you for such a simple, wonderful passage. Thank you for Paul's experiencing his patience and mercy and that he could be a model to untold number of people of your patience and mercy to each of us. God, we love you and we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. In Christ's name, amen.